Information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and you are listening to Episode 1 of the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Suicide Risk Assessment. About 10 or 11 people out of 100,000 will end their lives by suicide each year. But that's a complicated statistic. On the one hand, that rate makes suicide one of the top 10 causes of death in the United States and the third leading cause of death in adolescents and young adults. On the other hand, suicide has a low rate of occurrence in any particular individual. My name is Alan Newman, and I am a forensic psychiatrist, although my uh, day job is chairman of psychiatry at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. And we happen to be the closest hospital to the Golden Gate Bridge. So we uh, deal with a lot of uh, suicide issues. Dr. Newman, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about today is a suicide risk assessment. I think that's something that's near and dear to anyone uh, who does uh, mental health work. To take a, a larger kind of step back uh, before we dig into suicide risk assessment, you know, some people might wonder, particularly those outside the mental health field, why should mental health clinicians own the idea of suicide? Uh, is suicide uh, purely a psychiatric issue, uh, or is, is there something more to it? Well, there's definitely more to it than I think uh, society gives it credit for, and I think that the psychiatric field sometimes doesn't sort of wrap their brain around the full range of what suicide involves. Psychiatrists often tend to think of suicidal behavior as the product of a mental illness that we would treat, and that's certainly true, but there's also an entire field of study called suicidology that looks at sort of broader issues with suicide, not just people with acute mental illnesses, but um, you know the relationship between suicide and things like loneliness and things like response to social upheaval. And so it's a phenomenon that exists in our society that um, has a very strong overlap with psychiatry because so many of the diagnoses we treat are associated with uh, an increased risk of suicide. Some people would say that it's the uh, final common pathway for uh, end of life uh, with severe psychiatric disorders. You know, I think that that's true. And I think that, you know, unlike most physicians who treat a lot of disorders, a lot of diseases that will ultimately kill you, most psychiatric illnesses don't kill you in and of themselves. And the it's the suicide that makes many of our disorders lethal. What do you think about mental health clinicians predicting suicide? Is that something that's possible? Well, prediction is, uh, you know, one of those terms that, you know, I think gets people in trouble if they think that that's something that either um, we can do or we can we can try to do. Um, and what, you know, those of us who deal with this uh, a lot of the time try to do is really redirect away from a term like prediction and focus more on foreseeability, identifying 
risk factors that a reasonable person could associate with a high risk and identifying them and providing treatment. If you look at prediction, and this is true, you know, with both suicide and violence risk, which uh, I won't be talking about, it, the problem is, is that if we try to use prediction models, we tend to vastly overpredict. So prediction is not something that we should try to do or, or ever say we do, but it is absolutely the case that we have the ability to identify things that put people at higher risk, and we have the ability to provide treatments that reduce risk. Um, and that's a much better approach than the, the guessing game that comes with prediction. You know, when I was a, a medical student, and I'm let's just say it was uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, when I was a medical student, I was assigned to work in an emergency room and a patient came in who had suicidal thoughts and uh, somebody appeared, uh, some sort of mental health worker appeared with a clipboard and on the clipboard was a written document uh, that said contract for safety at the very top and then it was very kind of legally written and at the bottom, the patient and the emergency room mental health clinician were both supposed to sign it. And they, they taught me that this was a contract for safety. Is that something that's still the uh, standard that, that most emergency rooms or, or inpatient units should be using? It is not. And, and you know, it was, it was certainly never uh, an evidence-based practice, even in, in its heyday. You know, the idea behind a suicide contract, I think in in some people's minds, they actually believed that it was a, a useful tool. I think in other people's minds, they thought that it might give the institution some sort of legal protection if there was a bad outcome. In reality, you know, neither are true. One of the reasons is that a person who is genuinely at high risk for suicide, they may say they're not suicidal because they associate the contract with uh, something that would actually prevent them from acting on their impulses. So if somebody is really intent on harming themselves, they may be deceptive and say that they're not planning to harm themselves. And also, patients with elevated suicide risk often have a tremendous amount of ambivalence. And so, you know, they may at a moment sign uh, a form, but their suicidality may change uh, over a short period of time. And so it doesn't, you know, you're trying to capture a, a moment in time that may not reflect the clinical picture uh, of the patient. And then, you know, the other issue is that it doesn't really do anything. So a true legal contract must meet certain elements. One of those is an exchange of something of value. This is called consideration in legal terms. It's an agreement to do or not to do something in exchange for something else. In the case of a no-suicide contract, one party is agreeing to stay alive, but what valuable thing is the other party offering in exchange? The person who gets the patient to sign the form often is a stranger to the person, a person with whom the patient has no previous relationship. And, you know, the idea that, uh, that they're going to uh, entrust into a complete stranger this kind of life or death decision isn't always likely. Now, what is interesting is, is that if a, a patient refuses to sign a no-harm contract, 
there might actually be some usefulness to that. It might tell you that the person is extremely high risk. It could also mean other things. I'll tell you, though, because I deal with this both from a clinical perspective at my hospital, but I also I do medical legal work where there's bad outcomes. Despite the fact that we have a, a pretty robust literature on how useless a no-harm contract is, people still do it all the time, and they over-rely on it as some kind of evidence uh, of safety. So it's still out there despite the fact that there's no evidence to support its use. I've heard the term uh, risk assessment or suicide risk assessment, or sometimes it's even abbreviated as an SRA. How is that different than a contract for safety? What a suicide risk assessment does, if it's done properly, is it, it allows the person doing the evaluation to do a much more uh, robust formulation of what are the things that are increasing the person's risk, what are the things that might reduce risk, what are the means by which uh, a person could harm themselves. It allows, uh, it's a collection of a lot of information that then leads to a clinician actually assigning, I would say, a level of risk, you know, that at the end of this process of collecting this data, you can then sort of categorize an individual as being hopefully high risk, middle middle risk, low risk. And because you know what the risk factors may be, the protective factors, the means by which someone might harm themselves, then you can develop a treatment plan that's individualized to that person. So instead of the kind of yes or no, are you thinking of hurting yourself that you often see both with the contract for safety and also sometimes people will say denies SI, which doesn't give you much information. Uh, a suicide risk assessment actually is a, as a formulation of the, the clinical picture that allows you to have a, a special treatment plan for that person. Well, the you know, the, the, I've seen the idea of a suicide risk assessment kind of sliced and diced in, in a variety of ways. Uh, one of the ways is to differentiate so-called static risk factors from dynamic risk factors. Some people refer to those as more actuarial risk factors from clinical risk factors. Do you, do you see this distinction as useful? I think it is. it's useful for a couple of reasons. Part of the utility is that the dynamic risk factors uh, are the things that you can actually do something about. So dynamic risk factors would include things like untreated mental illness, the availability of a method to end one's life, or the presence of substance use intoxication. Dynamic risk factors can also include social factors, such as the lack of a support system and unemployment. It's certainly valuable to collect information uh, that's both sort of treatable and changeable versus things that are fixed. When you say fixed, you're talking about static risk factors. Those would include things like age over 65 in Caucasian men and Asian men and women, age under 25 in African American males and Native Americans. If we look at gender in the United States on its own, the rate for suicide in men is four times the rate in women. Single people have twice the suicide rate as married people. People with children in the home have a lower suicide rate than those without children in the home. Gay individuals may have a higher suicide rate than heterosexual individuals. 
and people with a history of suicide attempts or a family history of suicide are more likely to end their lives by suicide. But the problem is, is that, you know, if you know that uh, a patient is in a higher risk group, such as a, an elderly uh, uh, an elderly Caucasian man is at a higher risk group than a number of other populations. Well, once you have that fact, that's useful, but you can't actually change any of those circumstances. So it doesn't guide you in the treatment. And I think a mistake that people make is that they approach risk assessment almost like a, a checkbox approach. And I've seen this actually in places where they're just checking all the boxes of all the different kinds of risk factors. But that doesn't give you much. If you're looking at possibly admitting somebody to a hospital or discharging them from an emergency room, you need to actually know the kind of things that you can do. Because in this day and age, you don't have a lot of time to treat people. You know, you're not going to change somebody's racial background, their gender, probably not their religious background. <laughs> if you hold them for a long time, I guess you could change the age, but most of the time you can't change that either. So being aware of the things that you can actually treat is critical. And that's often missed when people fixate too much on this group has a higher risk of suicide. What ultimately really matters is the individual you're talking to. Another way that uh, risk factors seem to be sliced and diced are uh, acute risk factors versus chronic risk factors. Or maybe another way of thinking about it, is the patient at acute risk of harm to self or is the risk more chronic? Are, are these ways of thinking about things useful? They're very useful, and I think they're useful for a, a couple of reasons. And one is to get a sense of how long a person may need to be, for example, in the hospital before you can safely discharge them. So, for example, you might have somebody uh, with borderline personality disorder, and this patient may have episodes where they become extremely dysphoric, extremely dysregulated in response to a trigger. That person may be a very high risk for suicide in an emergency room, but you admit them, it might be a very short period of time, you know, hours perhaps, where their suicide risk is decreased. Now, if you look at this individual longitudinally, their lifetime risk of death by suicide may still be high, um, and it may not be different than somebody with more of a traditional chronic mental illness. But that person is somebody who has a chronically elevated risk, but their risk in the very short term may change very quickly. And if you contrast that, say, with somebody with a psychotic major depression, a patient with a, a melancholic major depression with a psychotic delusion, you're not going to expect that that person uh, one day or two days into admission is going to suddenly be different than how they were in the ER. These are disorders that may take weeks or longer to successfully treat. And so if this person is telling you six hours after admission that their symptoms are resolved and they're suddenly better, you should be very suspicious of that because they have an underlying disorder that wouldn't be associated with that level of improvement. So uh, when you look at somebody's longitudinal history, a person who's never been suicidal in their life, but now they're in the throes of a severe depression that's lasted for a few months, that person, you're not going to expect to have a quick turnaround. The person with the personality disorder that gets dysregulated based on a stress 
they may have a very short admission. But if you look at the lifetime risk of death by suicide with those two diagnoses, they may be the same. But in the moment of treatment, you approach them very differently. So we've talked a bit about the way that risk factors are organized in the minds of mental health clinicians. Let's just name some of them and, and uh, kind of go through the list. Uh, could, you, could you give us a sense of some of the, the more serious uh, risk factors for harm to self? Immediately, you can break down the risk factors into sort of diagnostic type issues, acute symptoms, and then perhaps access to harm. So for example, um, we know that not every psychiatric illness has the same risk of death by suicide attempts, but certainly um, mood disorders, both mania and depression, especially if there's psychotic presentations, psychotic disorders in general, things like cluster B personality uh, disorders, such as borderline personality, um, these are all associated with elevated risk. And, and extremely importantly, in, in the emergency room setting, are um, substance abuse disorders, whether they're associated with another mental illness or just right there. There's other psychiatric disorders that aren't necessarily associated with uh, an elevated risk of suicide. So knowing uh, the diagnoses uh, is helpful. But then, of course, digging a little deeper. So, for example, a person who has um, command auditory hallucinations to um, brush their teeth, uh, that would be less concerning than someone with command auditory hallucinations to kill themselves. Uh, same with delusions, that if somebody has a delusion that's related to kind of an inconsequential thing, they have the delusion that they're Benjamin Franklin, that's not something to worry about. If they have a delusion that um, their sins are going to cause the world to be destroyed, then you should worry. So it's not just the diagnosis, because two patients with chronic paranoid schizophrenia may have different levels of risk depending on what the symptoms present themselves as. So there's the diagnostic issues, um, but then there's some individual symptoms that cut across multiple illnesses that are very concerning. And when I look at cases of bad outcomes, these are the things that I think a lot of uh, hospitals drop the ball on. So for example, um, severe intractable panic attacks um, are often associated with a, an increased risk of suicide. Severe insomnia. I, I already mentioned command auditory hallucinations. Um, someone whose mental illness is associated with impulsivity. Um, and also um, someone who is hopeless um, and doesn't feel any um, emotional reactivity, someone who has anhedonia, those are um, particular symptoms that are associated with elevated short-term risk. And the good news about those symptoms is, is that quite a few of those um, will respond to treatment pretty quickly. Um, another thing that you really need to understand is the person's life circumstances. So, for example, uh, a person who has um, recently had uh, a humiliating social event. For example, a person may um, lose their job because they get caught having made a horrible mistake at work. You may have somebody who um, experiences something that they know is going to bring uh, shame or humiliation to their family. Um, there are, in, are, are things like that that can rapidly elevate someone from depression with some suicidal ideation to uh, a risk of acting on it. And then really, when you 
look at risk factors, you got to look at the way in which they might choose to kill themselves. And so if someone, for example, has access to a firearm um, or some other um, very lethal means of harm, that person may be at higher risk of death by suicide than someone who doesn't have the access to uh, as lethal uh, a means. So if we take all of these risk factors, whether they are static or dynamic, uh, whether they are acute or chronic, and we add them all up and we find that a person has multiple risk factors for harm, does that automatically mean uh, that we should admit all of those patients to the inpatient unit? It does not. And this is the source of a lot of people's anxiety, because if we had uh, unlimited bed space and unlimited resources, I think at one time in history, most people with a lot of risk factors would be admitted. I think that uh, what drives the decision can be based on a number of things. You know, one thing may be whether or not an inpatient unit is actually the most appropriate milieu for a person who's got suicidal thinking. It usually is, but you may frequently be dealing with someone who's uh, medically unstable. And if they require something, you know, like a oxygen, uh, an IV, those things might add a lot of risk. But they're still going to be admitted maybe to a medical surgical unit. There's some people that they may benefit more from staying in the emergency room for a period of time until you have a bigger picture. If a person, for example, is acutely intoxicated on methamphetamine, they may have some very high risk factors, but maintaining them safely in the ER for a period of time uh, may be sufficient to avoid admitting them to an inpatient psychiatric unit. You know, I think some of the mythology about an inpatient psych unit is that the immediate short-term care is what is reducing the suicidality. The reality is that a lot of why people need to be admitted to an inpatient unit is because the unit limits their access to harm. So they don't have ways to shoot themselves or hang themselves, hopefully, or do the self-harm thing. But the unit itself must be safe. If it's not safe, then the unit can be the place where people actually uh, engage in the self-harm. If you know somebody's lifetime history, you have a lot of collateral data to support your decision, you may have somebody that reports to you what appears to be very high risk, but you happen to have historical information that tells you that they shouldn't be admitted. Uh, Unfortunately, there are some patients that know that if they say certain things, that will allow them to be admitted to the hospital. Sometimes we can identify people who on the surface appear to be at high risk, but they might be malingering or taking advantage of it. But what I tell my trainees is always, always assume that the symptoms that are being conveyed to you are real. And the decision to uh, discount that based on some historical information does expose you to a lot of risk. It exposes the hospital and the patient to a lot of risk. It's an error that you don't want to make. And so there may be some circumstances where the person appears to be high risk, but you discharge them anyway. But it's something that shouldn't be done um, without uh, a considerable amount of judgment and history and hopefully support from a better trained clinician. I imagine that in a circumstance where someone does have a lot of kind of prima facie risk factors 
you know, risk factors on the surface, but the decision is made not to admit them, that a carefully thought out assessment explaining the clinician's thought processes may be helpful. Absolutely. I think one of the things that gets people in trouble when there's a bad outcome, uh, and by that I mean something that exposes them to medical legal liability or a joint commission citation against the hospital, is that they don't do a good job of articulating their reasoning. And the thing that you'll see on charts may be something no more than no SI, no HI contracts for safety. And that's it. And you don't find in some places much more evidence of a risk assessment. Now, they may have actually done a risk assessment. um, But if you fail to document, it's a lot harder to defend your actions if there's a bad outcome. The other reason you want to clearly document your thinking is that ultimately you will probably be making a decision to discharge a patient while they still have a number of risk factors. Uh, It's very rare to admit somebody with a large number of risk factors, and then within a short period of time, all those risk factors are gone. The static risk factors aren't going to go away, and many of the dynamic risk factors will respond to treatment at different rates. And you know, we live in a culture, uh, a medical, legal, and healthcare culture where doctors are sort of encouraged to make sure that they're really, really sick to justify admission so that the insurance carrier pays. But then often we get pressure after a short period of time to discharge them. And so what you sometimes see, I think, is, you know, doctors that describe, oh, my God, this person is at extremely high risk. We must admit them so that they can justify the admission. But then in a short period of time, when they're facing discharging the person, they feel anxious to say this person has all these risk factors. So they describe a person who is dramatically better. And the problem is, is that uh, when you look at a chart in hindsight, it looks very suspicious that somebody came in that sick and got that much better. And unless you articulate your reasoning, it can look like maybe you disregarded some risks or you were maybe putting things in the chart for the chart and not for the the patient's care. And so if you discharge somebody with a number of risk factors, you need to explain what your plan is. And I think that where some places get into trouble is, is that the person gets discharged right back to where they were when they were brought in. And, you know, for many patients, you can justify the discharge based on things like you can get them in a partial hospitalization program or a substance use program or an intensive outpatient program, or um, you can document that certain specific triggers are no longer present. You can document why this person who was so sick they had to be admitted a few days ago is now well enough to leave. But when you don't do it, it is sometimes hard to reconcile in hindsight how the person who justified admission on Friday is suddenly well enough to leave on Tuesday because most of our treatments don't work that fast. With uh, risk assessments so far, we've been talking about clinical judgment and clinicians kind of remembering through their own kind of knowledge and training risk factors and going through that checklist mentally. I'm aware that there are tools that some places use to help make uh, risk factor analysis or suicide risk assessments into something more structured 
What are your thoughts about those tools or psychometric instruments? There are some pros and cons to different approaches, but generally speaking, where people appear to be making the uh, worst decisions is when they don't have uh, any kind of standardized approach. Some hospitals will say, oh, we'll have a, a triage nurse or somebody fill out a checklist and it generates a score and now we've done a, a risk assessment. And the problem with that approach is, is that historically a lot of these tools um, actually there wasn't a strong uh, amount of evidence that they were valid tools. Some of them would capture some well-known risk factors, but the number generated by the tool didn't actually necessarily correlate with anything that was in the literature. The other problem with some of these assessment tools is, is that they might be done on the front end and then never revisited. So yeah, you've got this high score, but then what does that mean when the person is doing better? The instruments have gotten a little bit better over time. Probably the instrument that has the, there are some people that will disagree with me, but there's a, a, uh, an instrument called the uh, Columbia uh, Suicide Scale. And that seems to be the most uh, commonly used in the world of uh, ER triage. Of the tools that I'm personally familiar with, I think it's one of the best ones as well. But there's some limitations to it. We're actually doing a study using the tool at our at our own hospital. Um, one of the things that's great about the tool is that the developers of the tool have invested in a lot of resources to not only do research studies associated with it, but also to promote best practices in using the tool, training people, and training people who use the tool in a clinical sense differently than a triage sense, different than maybe in a research sense. I do think it's a good tool. I don't think the Columbia in and of itself is the only thing people should do. And I, and I think the, the problem that people get into when they use any tool that generates a number is that sometimes they fixate too much on the number and not on the individual things on the test that were significant. And so when it comes to determining somebody's risk, I think a tool like this is great, and we use it, and uh, I encourage it. But I think it, it, you need to get a little deeper than the number. And it's, this is true with a lot of tests we use. If you look at something like the MOCA for assessing uh, cognitive impairment, if a patient has a score of 24, well, that has some utility. But one patient's 24 may be very different than someone else's 24. And understanding the things that cause them to get a low score and approaching a strategy individual to those things is uh, as or more important than the number generated. So, you know, I'm a, I, I think that rating scales in general are underused in psychiatry. And, uh, but I think that what is the mistake people sometimes use with uh, rating scales is that it becomes part of kind of an admission checklist. But then when it comes time to make a change in somebody's privileges, a change in whether they're in the hospital or not, the, the tool doesn't get revisited and it, it has limited utility. What we use at my hospital, and this is an approach that the uh, Joint Commission has encouraged, is we use a tool that doesn't actually generate a score um, this is a tool called the SAFE-T, which stands for Suicide Assessment Five-Step Evaluation and Triage. And this is something that's very easy to get on the internet. 
And this was a resource that was developed in response to the Joint Commission recognizing uh, in 2007 that hospitals were really not doing a good job. And what the safety does, it is a process by which you uh, identify risk factors associated with increased risk, you identify protective factors that may be associated with reducing risk, you do a detailed suicide inquiry, and then based on that information, you kind of identify what level of risk the person's at, and the tool recommends different interventions. Now, this is not an either-or thing. I actually think a best practice would be to both use a tool like the Columbia but use it in conjunction with uh, a tool like this. And the reason is, is that a, a tool like the safety, a safety is less like a rating scale than a, a, a biopsychosocial formulation. It's something that gives you the information you need to make um, uh, a broad range of, of treatment plans. And so I think that when I see places that say, doctor, tell me what scale we should use to assess suicide, that's when I jump in and say, your approach needs to be a lot more robust than just a scale. But like all scales, there's a lot of value to using them versus not. Are we at a place in the practice of clinical medicine or clinical psychiatry or work in the emergency department for that matter, where the use of a tool or a scale is so standard that if we didn't use one, it would be considered malpractice. We're going to get there. Um, I don't think that we're at a point where if you don't use a specific tool um, or a specific rating scale that generates a number that you can say it's malpractice. However, there's no question that um, making decisions about suicidality without some kind of systematized risk assessment would likely be considered below the standard of care. Now, a systematized risk assessment is a, uh, is a much broader thing than using a tool. I think people who use a rating scale in addition to a systematized approach are going to be in a much more defensible place than, you know, people who rely on the traditional no SI. It'll be interesting to see if it gets there. In the malpractice cases that I've participated in uh, as an expert, the absence of a standardized tool was not a factor in any of the cases that I can think of by itself. And there were a number of cases that despite having used a tool that generated some kind of data, um, there may have been liability otherwise. So I think it's a best practice. I think it's something that as the science continues to evolve, it'll become indefensible. You know, if you think about lots of innovations in medicine. You know, there was a time where an EKG would not have necessarily been the standard of care because the technology didn't exist. Um, in the 1980s, there were only a handful of CT scanners in the country. And so, you know, with any new innovation, there's that period of time where you're starting to see the adaption of it. And, you know, it remains to be seen whether it becomes a standard of care. Certainly, the APA practice requirements uh, to my knowledge, do not uh, name a specific tool and mandate its use. Dr. Newman, let's shift gears a bit and talk about reducing risk of suicide. What can be done to improve things for our patients? One of the things that I would love to talk about is 
safety in the hospital. One of the things that has really shocked me since I started doing expert witness work on suicide cases is the number of times where the culprit was really the physical plant, that a patient was identified as being at high risk for suicide and they were admitted to an inpatient unit where presumably they would be safe, and yet there were things in place that allowed them to commit suicide on the unit. And I think the most shocking thing is not that these physical plant issues exist, but how often the hospitals and the doctors involved weren't aware of the data. And so, for example, you know, it's very well known. Uh, the VA did a, a very good study because they had access to a lot of inpatient units that the place that people commit suicide on inpatient psych units tends to be an interior bathroom or interior closet, usually a door that can be closed, anything that can be a fixed anchor point. For, and you don't have to suspend your body. It only takes about 20 pounds of pressure on the carotids, and that's sufficient. And if you are, you know, if you cut off the blood supply for more than a few minutes, you have irreversible brain damage. The significance of this is not just that there are many units that have known ligature points, both in the bathrooms, drop ceilings that have uh, exposed pipes, rigid doors, but that what many hospitals will do, and it's still something you see everywhere, is the 15-minute check. Now, think about that. Five minutes of hypoxia to the brain has irreversible brain damage, and yet hospitals will make the decision to put somebody that they think is high risk uh, on a 15-minute check. And if that patient who's high risk is paying attention, they may actually know that they have, you know, 15 minutes until the next time uh, someone comes around. And there are um, a, an enormous number of cases, including many that I've reviewed, where the person committed suicide while on 15-minute checks. So people working in hospitals really need to ask questions. Why do we have the levels of precautions that we have? Now, the answer you'll get from nursing staff is, is we don't have the staff to have everybody on one-to-one. So this is a, a staffing issue. And the reality is, is that not every single patient needs to be on one-to-one. The question that really comes up is, if the unit is safe enough, do you really need 15-minute checks? And when would you need them? And what I think is reasonable that uh, my, ho- my hospital's approach is that we don't have a thing that we call 15-minute checks for suicide. But we do check on every patient every 15 minutes. And part of that is just so that we know where everybody is <laughs> and that we you know, know that no- someone hasn't eloped. We know that somebody isn't uh, in acute distress. So we do a lot of monitoring, but we don't do it for suicide risk. If we think the person's at elevated suicide risk, we don't believe 15 minutes is sufficient. Dr. Newman, you work in San Francisco, the home of Silicon Valley. Are there any technological innovations that can reduce the risk of suicide? What I believe is an emerging standard of care that right now you don't see anywhere is that I think ultimately inpatient hospitals will be using wearable technology. You know, I wear a Fitbit that is always tracking my heart rate, that has been very useful in tracking my sleep. Technology exists for pulse oximetry. And it's surprising that hospitals have not embraced the wearable approach. Part of that is that you might not have the economies of scale to, you know, somebody needs to develop this. But if you think about it, you know, a 15-minute check in the year 2018 is no different than a 15-minute check in the year 1950. And if we had, uh, you know, a patient wearing a sensor that sets off an alarm when uh, when the patient becomes suddenly hypoxic 
or there's a cardiac event, that's going to allow an immediate staff response. And I think that once those tools are available for hospitals, I think that will quickly become a standard of practice. But right now, it's not a standard of practice because, you know, there's nowhere you can just buy those tools. Besides technology, are there other things that can be put into place to reduce risk for our patients? The other issue that uh, I'd like to mention, because I am in San Francisco, and I can actually literally see the Golden Gate Bridge right now as we speak. It's the view out of my window. And we have suicides on average at least one a week, maybe more, on the Golden Gate Bridge. The troubling thing about places like the Golden Gate Bridge is that the lethality is extremely high. The survival rate uh, of jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge is about 2%. Some people are surprised that it's that high, um, but some people actually do survive. And a lot of those survivors have been interviewed, and most of them will say that they immediately regretted the jump as soon as they were in the air. And when you follow people who've survived things like that longitudinally, the majority of them are alive after five years or 10 years. They still have an elevated suicide risk, but many of them actually wind up having a good prognosis. And for that reason, it's now been recognized that places like high bridges need to have suicide barriers. The resistance to things like suicide barriers is people will say, well, they're going to find some way to kill themselves. They're going to do it anyway. And this is the same argument that some people use about restricting access to a firearm. And I'm not making this as a gun control argument. People who are acutely suicidal should not have access to guns. Maybe they can have access in the future when they're at lower risk. That's a different conversation. But in the midst of elevated risk, they shouldn't have access to guns. And it's the same reason why the Golden Gate Bridge should have a suicide barrier. Because even if you can't prevent some suicide attempt, if you can restrict the access to something with an extremely high rate of lethality, even if they attempt suicide with something with a lower rate of lethality, from an epidemiologic point of view, far more people will survive suicide. What about the level of the individual patient? Are there treatments in psychiatry that reduce risk of suicide? Our treatments are getting better. There's a lot of promise for things like ketamine infusions. Ketamine infusions may eventually become a standard of care for certain kinds of patients with elevated suicidality. ECT has long been known to be particularly good in super high-risk patients with suicide. Patients with chronic schizophrenia, clozapine substantially reduces suicidal ideation. And people with bipolar disorder, lithium has anti-suicide properties that you don't see in other mood stabilizers. And so it's not just about assessing the risk of suicide, but we actually do have treatments that work. And the mistake that a lot of clinicians make is they say, oh, they're depressed. I put them on antidepressant. Well, there's no antidepressant that kicks in after three or four days. But if their suicidality is associated with terrible panic attacks, we can treat that quickly. If it's associated with profound insomnia, we can treat that quickly. And certainly things like ECT and lithium, you know, you can get a response pretty quickly. So Suicide is a much more nuanced issue than it's often given credit for. And when you compare places that are doing it right and places that aren't, um, you see some pretty dramatic differences in care. Dr. Newman, I want to thank you so much for spending uh, part of your very, very busy day talking with us instead of looking out the window at the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> it's my pleasure.